your money from the cashier and get out of here. He spoke through shut teeth. He turned away from Henry, striking his hands together behind his back, striding to the window and gazing out fixedly. Henry went. Presently the chairman was surprised to find himself trembling. At his age it wasn't good to allow himself to get so angry. He came back to his chair and sat down heavily. Impertinence! he muttered to himself. But, as he formed the word, he knew it wasn't quite that with young Hayburn. There had been a clash of wills, and he had not succeeded in making the young man's will yield to his own. No, young Hayburn might be headstrong and foolish, but this was not common impertinence. He was brilliant, and his brilliance, untempered by experience, made the boy arrogant. But, if only for his health's sake, he must banish his anger, and he must make his peace with the son of his dead friend, Robert Hayburn. He bent forward and banged the brass bell on his table. Is Hayburn there? Henry came back into the chairman's private room. He carried his hat. The old man held out his hand. You're the son of a very old friend, Henry, he said, using the young man's first name again now that he had ceased to be an employee. It would be a bad business for us if we didn't part friends. There was a childish, almost appealing look in Henry's face as he took his hand, mumbling, Thank you, sir. I thought I was doing you a good turn taking you in here. I thought that maybe... The chairman had meant to say things about taking Henry's father's place, about helping Henry back to prosperity... But he realised in time that anything he might say would have an air of falseness to this strange young man with his strong opinions. There was nothing to do then but shake the hand that Henry gave him, wish him well, and repeat his hope that what had passed would make no difference to their friendship. Henry stammered assurances, but as he turned and went out, each of them knew that they had merely thrown crumbs to appearances— that their ideas were flatly opposed, that there could never be any question of Henry's remaining in the employ of the established and unprogressive firm of which this old man was the chairman. Chapter 2 Belle Moorhouse sat on the rocks, awaiting the arrival of her husband on the weekend steamer. From where she sat near the new-built pier, Brodick Bay stretched away from her in a crescent of summer loveliness the sweep of golden sand, the little highland village, the green woods, above them the moors and hills turning purple here and there with the first of the bell heather, and, assembling all this, giving shape to the picture, the elegant cone of goat fell, basking up there across the bay in the July sunshine. But Bell was not particularly in tune with all this beauty, as she sat, too carefully dressed for this, the least conventional of islands, absently digging the point of her parasol into a crevice of the rock. From time to time she looked up from her thoughts to assess the size of the squat black dot out there on the diamond horizon. The dot was her husband's steamer as it paddled its way across the breezy, sunlit firth on its Saturday afternoon run to the island of Arran. No, it was all very well. Brodick was beautiful, of course, and the children liked running wild, 
but there were limits. After all, the Moorhouse family were turning into somebodies and would have to live accordingly. Exactly a week ago, they had all spent the day at Duntrafford, Arthur's brother, Mungo, by virtue of his marriage to its heiress, was, however simple his ways might seem, a man of substance. And David, Arthur's younger brother, had married another young woman of wealth. David was no countryman. He had poise to unite to the fortune his marriage had brought him. Bell had no doubt that he and his wife Grace would fly high before they had finished. She did not suffer from any narrow jealousy, but she had no intention of being left behind. Were Mungo's and David's children to be allowed to grow up looking down their noses at Arthur's children? Not so long as the mother of Arthur's children had any say in the matter. In the concentration of her thoughts,